On the 4th of December 1985, a film was released in the United States starring at that time a little and a little known actor known as Michael J. Fox. It featured a mad professor who seemingly had invented a system whereby time travel was possible. But more importantly for those of us who live in Northern Ireland, the star of the show was the DeLorean car which had been built in Belfast. The film in question is of course Back to the Future and was the highest grossing film of that year and sent Michael J. Fox into stardom and also it reminded us that well the DeLorean car and the manufacturing of it went bust pretty much soon after. But tonight we begin this new series in the Psalms from Psalm 81 and it's very much a case of Back to the Future. For in it Asaph and if you've got your Bible there, you'll notice that even before verse 1 begins is the musical director the priests had in David's day. He was the head of the Levite school of music and had the responsibility for writing and singing and conducting an orchestra at a time of national and great celebration. Asaph wrote at least 12 psalms and for centuries his songs have been sung by way of giving voice of praise to God's people. Here we read again before the verse 1 begins in the introduction. He writes, it's a gittith, which is a Bible footnote describing it as a musical terms, sometimes for joyous singing, feasting and celebrating. This was a time of festival praise. We might find some psalms easier to sing than others and likewise we might find some of the psalms easier to understand than others. But each of these songs is a little window into the lives of the Israelite people. Every song has a backstory. None of these songs just fell on the page from a musician who was gently strumming their harp away some days. Oh, that will make a good praise song. No, they all have a history. And tonight we go back to the future with Asaph. First of all, as we hear him make a call in verses 1 to 5 to strike up the band. Strike up the band. These opening verses are all about the sound of strumming, singing, beating and blowing. There's a lot of noise, but drawn all together, it's the praise of God who has given them strength. And a call goes out from Asaph, the conductor. Look at verse 1, bring singers. Verse 2, you're joined by the percussionists on the tambourines, followed in turn by the strings. And then the ultimate call to worship goes up in verse 3 with the trumpet blast of the ram's horn to start this new season of celebration. In verse 3, we read it's the new moon which signaled the beginning of this feast. And it probably was either the Passover season or the Feast of Tabernacles. Both of those declared a time in history when God had redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt and led them towards the Promised Land. This was the Old Testament equivalent of our Easter. A time of incredible, unexpected rescue. And verses 4 and 5, it is declared by God to be a time to remember. You read words there in verses 4 and 5 like decree, ordinance, established, statute. It was a festival at which everything else in life must stop. It was a festival that must not be forgotten. It was a season that must be celebrated. And the shouts were directed to the God of Jacob. For in looking back, these were days that were to continue into the future. 
These days dare not be neglected. Whatever else was going on in the lives of the Israelites at the time, whatever other work was pressing in, whatever farming needs were gathering, whatever homework needed done or housework to attend to, family matters that were frustrating, health issues that were hovering, they all had to be put on hold. It was set aside for that time that God's people might sing. Of course, people could whistle a happy tune by themselves. Like today, you can sing in the car and equally you can sing in the shower. Worship God by their praise in the garden or singing on the sofa we might do today. But God is calling them all through Asaph's song to come together. There's only one place to be at a time of celebration, marking what God has done for his people and that is with his people. Oh yes, you see, we do have a personal faith in a saving God, but that immediately brings us into a corporate safe with the people of God. It is a powerful reminder that praise rises as we come together. God's praise is sung as we use one voice. Asaph doesn't dazzle them all with a salvation solo. You don't come to the place of worship to be wowed by the musicians and singers at the front. The call goes out to every believer to sing. God declares that in days of celebration, we're to be united, we're to be joined and praising together. And how significant is it that we're confronted once again during this time of self-protection and family isolation with yet more biblical evidence by way of God's instruction in relation to praise that binds us together. We miss being together. We miss singing as one. And like me, I am sure that you've heard people say, oh, you know, once we come out of lockdown, things will never be the same again. Life will have to change. We avoid that we will be all the more appreciative We'll be more committed. We'll be more involved. Really? Will we? Or will the novelty of church wear off just as quickly as we've missed it? But it will not be long before birthday parties or wedding anniversaries or walks on the beach or Sunday afternoon drives or the first glimpse of sunshine and everyone heads to the port, or even our very minor niggles, or what work could be done later, are the only excuses that have taken us away from that place of worship in the past will take us away from worship in the future. But you see, when God says strike up the band, God's people are to be there in an instant with a raised voice giving praise to our God who gives us all our strength. And with an open heart, standing beside fellow believers, when we choose to skip our celebrations for whatever reason, we are saying that our priorities are more important than our presence with God's people. And it's more important than giving him praise. Think about that. But we are to strike up the band and we are to get singing. Here's the second point, verses 6 to 10. Remember your God. Remember your God. The next five verses are a potted history of the book of Exodus. And where God sees his people's needs in Egypt in verse 7 of the psalm, our God responds. For hundreds of years under Pharaoh's oppression, look at verse 6, 
They had carried burdens on their shoulders, baskets. It was hard manual labor. There were baskets for this, baskets for that, bricks and straw. Their hands and their energies engaged in the service of those who treated them so shamefully as slaves. And in their distress, they called out to the God of their fathers who had brought them to Egypt in the first place in the days of Joseph. And now they say, Lord, as you brought us here, lead us out. Take us away. And God heard. And God answered. In Asaph's Back to the Future song, they sing that he frees us. He frees us. Now, it'd be so easy to skate over Israel's salvation in just a few seconds. But let us not forget, because we're urged not to forget, that this is the God who humiliated Pharaoh, sent ten plagues, the God with power to turn water into blood, raise up insects from the sand, withhold daylight, and even protect his people in judgment whilst bringing death and destruction to Egypt. All in one night. This is the God who led them all, and I mean all, hundreds of thousands of people, young and old, fit and the stragglers, through a raging sea on dry ground. The God who removes the heavy baskets of slavery. The God who puts a stop to injustice. The God who uses creation as toys in his hand for his own purposes and all for the salvation of his people. This God, this is our God. This God frees. The Bible word for this is redeemed, wonderfully rescued, lifting and freeing his people from a most burdensome weight and the agonizing slavery in Egypt. This is the God who saves, the God he frees. But he is also the God having delivered his people, who brings discipline to his people. As secondly, we note in verse 7, that not only does he free us, but he teaches us. He teaches us. God brought his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Look at verse 7, the place of the thundercloud where God had laid before them the famous Ten Commandments, which laid out so clearly not just what God has done for his people by way of rescue, but how God should live, God's people should live in response to their redemption. The commandments were given to God's people through the mediation of Moses as the people carred away in fear at the base of the mountain, afraid of the thunder and lightning and the holiness of God who had warned them. Exodus chapter 19. It was a, a, an education for Israel that this was their God. They needed a reminding just what kind of God they were dealing with in the desert. A God who was not to be taken lightly. Exodus 19 verse 16 records the people trembled. And he continued to educate them. To teach them that through his holiness there were commands that followed. The first four commandments all reflected worshipping God and God alone. The final six, a loving response to God's people around about them. In other words, there was no reason for lying or stealing or coveting or gossiping or hatred or envy or greed because God was a giving God, a saving God, a providing God. Any breach of these commands on behalf of his people reflected badly on their God. And it was like playing with lightning. It's like playing with thunder. It was deadly. 
bickering and moaning amongst God's people suggests that God doesn't really care. That God doesn't really supply needs. That God isn't capable of giving what is required. But that is exactly what happened at the waters of Meribah. Do you read that in verse 7? The story is recounted in Exodus 17 verse 7. And they asked the question, they tested God, they quarreled and said, Is the Lord with us or not? Is he here or not? Where is he? Whoa, whoa, we say, steady on Israel, do you hear what you're asking? Is God with us? Is God able to provide? Does God really care? They were thirsty and refused to believe that God could turn water to blood and hold back tidal seas and wondering now if this God could even provide a drink for them. Had they lost it? You see, they were being taught a lesson that we also need to learn. For that very name Meribah means strife. It was a place where the Israelites were brought, were tested, and it's also where they failed. And I sense that this time of coronavirus, isolation, lockdown, may be our generation's Meribah, a time of testing. For everything we've relied upon in life has slowly been removed. We're being tested. But are we being called out, found out? Is our faith real? What is it we are learning? Like the Israelites are the false gods of this age, the idols of our hairstyles, our fashion, our beauty, our health, our exam results, our recognition, our socialising, our meals out, our coffee shop catch-up, our luxury holidays, the transfer tests, educational accomplishments, sports we follow and are sinfully addicted to. God is asking as if Asaph asked in Psalm 81 verse 7, with all this gone, Verse 8, have I finally got your attention? Are you listening? With no Sunday afternoon football on sky and nowhere to have your roots done and no long lazy afternoons window shopping or places to go than with your family or your own company with God's Bible sitting on your shelf. Are we satisfied with what we have? Or are we moaning because of what we do not have? Let me put it another way that our farmers will appreciate probably more than the rest of us. Seasons all have their value, don't they? Daylight changes and temperatures rise and sunlight comes and rain falls. And the rest of us chat about it, but farmers are obsessed with it. Seasons show that periods of fruitfulness require periods of quietly preparing the ground. And times to let the earth just sit, settle. Because you see, where there is perpetual sun, all you get is desert. And so it is with our Christian lives. If we just live in the sunshine and fun times and good times all the time, none of us will ever grow. If everything is sunny all the time for us and nothing ever unsettles us or shakes us, will we become Nothing but deck chair Christians, lounging around but learning nothing. So with our Christian lives, we need varying seasons of our relationship with God that tests us and trains us and teaches us. And you know what? When we seek for God, not in a moaning and a groaning sense, 
But whenever we cry out for help in the hard times, saying that we are struggling to cope, he hears. And thirdly, within this section, he fills us. He fills us. He says, remember who I am, the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am a saving God. Don't you remember me? And so verse 10 is a beautiful verse. Here's the verse to learn for this week. Verse 10, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon of the last century wrote so eloquently on this verse. He said, one springtime I discovered a bird's nest in which there were a number of little birds. They were not fledged enough to fly and their judgment were not well developed. And therefore they mistook me as I looked into the nest for their mother or father. I would not touch them, but I held my fingers over them and they opened their mouths wide. No, the little creatures seemed to me as if they were all mouth. The little birds in their nests are far more sensible than we are. For when God hovers over us with his widespread wings and covers off us with his warm feathers of love, he has need to say to each one of us, open your mouth wide. I want to fill it. I want to fill you with good things. The little birds need no instruction in opening mouths except their inner needs. Brothers and sisters, if we had more sense of our need, prayer would be more of an instinct in us. We should pray because we could not help but pray. We would pray probably more truly if we prayed because of those groanings within us caused by an intense pain and moaning that came out of an inward agony and longings that come out of the consciousness of our dire necessities. Surely this kind of opening of the mouth by the sense of our need should be easy for us for our needs are very great. Someone once said in prayer, that we as humans are just a big bag of wants. And that's a good description. We are a bag of wants. And those wants can only be met by the one who gave us all for us. Are we conscious of our many needs? Dear friend, are you growing conscious of your own power? If so, pray against it with all your might. A much better thing is to become conscious of our own weakness so that we will pray all the more and open our mouths wide and seek that God would fill us and in our weaknesses find his strength. But you see, here's the thing. When we open wide, he does fill us. And maybe some of us need reminding again of this great God of salvation. We need convincing of evidence tonight as we struggle in this week seven of lockdown. Can we trust him? We need to know that if we open wide our mouths that he will fill us. For that we must return to the core teaching of our faith that actually sustains us at these times. For we are reminded that the man, Jesus Christ, is God in human flesh. The creator become human. And at the heart of what we believe is the death of this same Jesus on the cross of salvation outside Jerusalem. And the question that any sensible person asks at that moment, why is God incarnate on a cross? Well, at the very least, it shows that God has not remained distant from human pain and suffering, but he has himself experienced it. 
Therefore, a Christian is not so much a person who solved the problem of pain and suffering, but one who's come to trust a God who has himself been in pain and suffering. That's incredible, isn't it? That God himself, who sits on the throne, the dust of the earth that sits on the throne of heaven, has experienced pain and suffering like we have experienced. But that is only half the story. For this is the God whose suffering was physical, yes, emotional, absolutely, spiritual, completely, but it was on behalf of others. Jesus died as the sin bearer, the shame carrier, dead there for you and for me, judged by God, found not guilty, not because of his own sin, but because of my sins and your sins. And if ever there was a man who could or should have cried, it's unfair, why am I going through all this? It was Christ. But then he rises again because his sacrifice was complete. His death was acceptable payment for sin before our God. So that instead of us being washed away in the Red Sea of our sin and sorrow, we have a clear path of salvation through it with a Savior who fills us with eternal hope and joy that we call resurrection. Friend, do you not see that our God is not just willing, but he's able to fill us. The problem is we've filled our lives for so long with so many other things. We have forgotten to ask. I have an aunt called Phyllis. And one of my best friends, well, his wife is, well, has a middle name, Phyllis, for which she gets endless ribbing. So every so often, the old joke crops up and my friend uses it. Knock, knock. Who's there? Fill us. Fill us who? Fill us a glass of water. Fill us. Fill us again. And isn't that what we need to pray for again tonight? Crying in our sin, forgive us. In our sufferings, Lord, meet us. In our doubts, oh Lord, assure us. In our feelings, Lord, we've failed you. Lift us. In our emptiness at this time, Lord, fill us. Will the God of Egypt's plagues, Red Sea miracles, the God of the cross and the empty tomb, will he not supply our needs? The one who was rich yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Oh, fill us, we pray. In the verse that we'll be learning over these next few Sunday mornings. May we have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Fill that love. Fill us. May we be congregations full of Phyllises. Thirdly, we notice in verses 11 to 15, stop singing, but start listening. Stop singing and start listening. And these verses are very plain speaking because they're all about listening. The remarkable thing about the rejection of God and his voice in these verses is that it is by God's people. Look at verses 8, 11 and 13. Let's apply God's word to our hearts. This is for God's people tonight. These verses are almost bewildering, completely 
baffling. The astonishment that Asaph is encouraging the people to sing about is their own rebellious nature. Rather than delighting in God's word, God's people have been spiritually deaf, choosing to ignore. And isn't that the same problem that we face today? The problem is not that the world does not know God, but that the people of God don't know God, or at least we don't act like we know our God. Instead of worshipping the Lord, we're all too often end up worshipping the same things that everyone else worships out there. James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote, Whenever I travel around the country and speak at so-called evangelical churches, the thing that strikes me most is how little awareness of the presence of God there seems to be. The services are relevant in the sense that they deal with a supposed human need. They're lively, often entertaining. Like the worship described at the beginning of this psalm, they are full of often loud, joyful, boosted by musical instruments. To judge from what I hear, Christianity has become a form of Sunday entertainment rather than a community of those who know and are learning to obey God. You see, the greatest issue of all time is not if you worship, because we all worship something. The issue is what is it we worship? And as Christians, we need to be careful that we do not worship the warm, fuzzy feeling that we get by being in La Comfort and Union Road. Because the first commandment is not just for our kids to memorize and learn in a catechism, but to find your life and mine and our worship forever. Is there one God and do we worship him alone? Because the Bible worship is not singing. Biblical worship is service of God. The word for worship in the Bible is service. And yes, that might sound very boring, but it's the same word for obedience, to obey. That is why many of us need to stop singing for a while and actually start to listen. Many of us can very quickly tell each other what our favourite praise band is or praise artist is and what our favourite songs are. But what is the verse of Scripture that gladdens your heart and deepens your faith? For we can only really sing meaningfully of God when we know him. We know that the best love songs are written out of knowledge, knowing the person that you idolise, literally, deeply. And so whatever it is we sing about, think about, fill our heads with most that is what we will become. God will give us over to those things, those thoughts, those desires. So let me ask you even this week, shush the noise and open the book and hear him speak and obey. Fourthly and finally, do you see what he will do? Let's look at verse 16 together. We read there, but you would be fed with the finest of wheat with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. One of our favourite board games as a family is this one here. It's Sorry. Uh, this was actually a, a, my dad's edition of it. It's been in the Leach family for quite some time. It's a game a little bit like Ludo. And at the start of the game, if you land on another player or draw the card that says Sorry, the players are actually quite genuine and do what the instructions say. You actually look at the person and say, sorry. But as everyone begins to make their own way home and gets to a conclusion of the game, at the business end of the game, you might say, no one really takes saying sorry to each other seriously. 
For instead of apologizing, it's more like if you draw the sorry card. Yes, I'm getting one up on you. I'm getting ahead of you. In other words, we only end up caring for ourselves and what makes life comfortable for me along the journey to the end. And we lose the impact of sorry. As we think we'll reach the end successfully by ourselves. And what is true in a family board game is true of our life with God. We lose the impact of saying sorry to our Saviour. We forget the need of repentance. We live lives as Hebrews 6 verse 6 so graphically and tragically puts it. It's as if we crucify the Saviour over and over again. And Psalm 81 is for us a back to the future reminder that God's people we need to get back to the cross and repent to come before our God broken and in humility and here's the thing when we fall before God and seek his face and cling to his mercy verse 16 tells us he will feed us with what is finest he will satisfy us with what is sweetest and this is the relationship we have with God when we disobey him and pursue other idols we will feel the pain of God's chastening hand upon us shaking us saying I'm here, have you forgotten me? And we will also miss out on his blessings that he desires to give us. God give Israel water from the rock. He's prepared to give us honey miraculously from the rock. But the word if back in verse 13 is small and yet it carries huge consequences. If, if you, if you. Back in the 1980s, there was a very popular darts-based TV show called Bullseye that was hosted by Jim Bowen and now has endless repeats on Challenge TV. The prizes were naff and the concept was pretty poor as the general public were paired up with darts professionals. But the classic line from Jim Bowen, the host, in almost every episode as the contestants failed to win the star prize of a motorboat or a weekend in Blackpool, he turned to them and said, just look at what you could have won. Just look at what you could have won. The what ifs. Christian friends, we're in no quiz show, but God our Father wants to bless us. He is a God who is full of mercy and grace with storehouses of love. So don't let our lives be full of the what ifs and the might have beens and if only we'd asked, if only we'd trusted, if only we'd obeyed. Don't look back during these weeks of lockdown if they're to last for another five, six weeks and say, oh, if only I'd given time to when I had the chance. And come the end of your lives, if only I'd trusted and repented and gone on with the Lord as I should. What a song Asaph was asking God's people to sing. What strange lyric for God's people to cry out in song to one another we're rebels and we need redeemed but the joy of this psalm is that even when we fail to listen we are constantly repeatedly invited again to hear this is what is happening again even here tonight as i speak to you this is the wonder of our gracious savior he does not leave us to our own fate he is there is no need for lingering punishment Look at the life that you could have, Jesus says, if you only listen to me. So tonight, dear friend, rejoice and remember and repent and you will receive. 
The story goes that the late Shah of Persia, the great ruler of the East, who being greatly pleased with one of his courtiers one day, made the rule that if his courtier opened his mouth and then he began to fill it with diamonds and pearls and rubies and emeralds, I would expect that under those circumstances that mere courtier opened his mouth so wide. Fill her up. Open wide. Friends, tonight, open your mind. Open your heart. Open your ears. Open your mouth wide. And let this gracious God fill you with good things.